guests, the podcasts, on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm very happy to be back presenting the podcast at what feels like a very important moment in the war in Ukraine. I am joined by an all-star cast to make sense of Putin's latest announcements about the Russian response to the recent Ukrainian successes on the battlefield, but also to put it in a bigger context and to think about what Europe can do to prepare for a long war in Ukraine and how Europe can signal its plans to support Ukraine, both militarily through security guarantees and in economic terms. We have an amazing group of ECFR policy fellows to help us make sense of these things. First up is Kadri Leek, who is a senior policy fellow from the Wider Europe Programme and one of our most astute Russia watchers. We also have Gustav Grasser, another senior policy fellow from the Wider Europe Programme, who's been specialising particularly on the military aspects of the war in Ukraine. Piotr Buras joins us from uh, Warsaw. He's also a senior policy fellow as well as head of the office there. And finally, back to the podcast, we have Jeremy Shapiro, ECFR's research director. Jeremy, Gustav, Piotr and their colleague Marie Dumoulin have just written a paper called Survive and Thrive, a European plan to support Ukraine in the long war against Russia. So we want to hear about that. But before we do that, maybe you can tell us, Kadri, about what Putin said and what that means for the next phase of the conflict. Well, I think Putin's announcement today, or the one that we actually expected already a day earlier, um, that was some time coming now. And that Putin's initial plan on the battlefield didn't work out. That was to take Kiev in no time, cause regime collapse. And then also his plan B didn't quite work out. Plan B was to try to limit his offensive to the eastern uh, oblasts in Ukraine and grind Ukrainians to halt. Recent weeks uh, have shown Ukrainian counteroffensive that has probably baffled the Kremlin. And I think what we saw, it has been long time coming. Russia ups the stakes. So Putin said that Russia will mobilize. He announced a partial mobilization of around 300,000 people. Um, remains to be seen how, how that goes. He endorsed referendums for Ukrainian oblasts. They will now vote to join Russia. A remarkable thing is that not all of these are fully even controlled by Russia. Uh, earlier, Russia had postponed referendums in the hope to gain proper hold of the territory. Now they are hoping to uh, use the referendums to make Ukraine think twice before attacking these territories. Or actually, they want to affect American uh, calculations. They want to create a situation where Ukraine would be hitting Russian territory if it bombs these four oblasts. And, and America to be worried about it and discourage Ukraine from doing so. And finally, but also logically, he said that to defend Russia's territory, which would then include these parts, uh, they will use all means necessary, and that includes nuclear threat. So it's a, a significant 
escalation in terms of the way that Russia is positioning itself, and it is a response to the loss of thousands of square kilometers of territory to Ukraine in recent times. Um, I want to move on to the long-term plan, but before we do that, it'd be great to hear both from you, (laughs) Gustav, about how you think that will play out in the battlefield and and what this means for the the way the war works. And then also maybe from Jeremy about this idea of the threat of, uh, of nuclear escalation, particularly how that's being seen in Washington. Well, thanks a lot. So basically, the first consequence is, of course, that that the long war is again on, because if Russia would not have mobilized, the Russian armed forces might might very likely have lost the war over the winter, uh, because they had spent their strategic uh, and operative reserves, and uh, the, the momentum was on the Ukrainian side, and they had not the forces to, to really uh, uh, regain the initiative. And most strikingly, uh, this Kharkiv offensive happened at a time where the Russian armed forces tried to recruit volunteers for the next phase of the war, for the winter phase of the war, in order to relieve uh, people who were already fighting. And of course, if you have a stunning defeat at the time where you're trying to create volunteers, that basically has crushed the effort. So now they are forcing this effort and the number of 300,000 rather suggests that they are uh, attempting to relieve and, and resupply those forces who are in the theater with men rather than to sort of radically re-alter the stakes, uh, launch another attack on Kiev, etc., for which you would need much more uh, people to, uh, to attack. Still, there are a lot of open questions which are, with which structure they want to come, etc., and how, how fast can they turn that around, because the Ukrainians still can do uh, stuff in between. And then, uh, this is of course the next domestic risk, risk for him, uh, he, he will send uh, these people who are not enormously motivated into a war that is quite and was quite bloody for the Russians and will continue to be bloody for the Russians. And even with the 300,000 men, they will not enjoy an overwhelming majority that enables them to drive home an offensive. That said, he now involves broader ranges of the society and people who sort of shrinks the space of pe- for people to stay out of the war effort if they don't approve it, and a lot of them don't approve it. So that means, of course, that his domestic risk-taking has been, has been considerably increased by, by this step. And what about this nuclear uh, threat? How serious is that? Is that a game-changer? I mean, he's been talking about nuclear weapons for a long time. Well, he has. He has aired these kind of threats uh, consistently throughout the crisis. Um, and and usually, and sort of predominantly even this time, this was more addressed against the West. So keep out and don't involve directly. He also uh, this time sort of addressed the threat with the link to US involvement into the war. However, of course, now the lines are a bit more blurry. He made reference to uh, preserving Russia's territorial integrity, which is not in line, actually, with with sort of past Russian communication on the employment of nuclear weapons, where there's the existence of the state at threat. Uh, existence of the state uh, is is not a threat if you if you, for example, attack a NATO base in Russia. So things that actually already have happened during the war. So he definitely wants to increase confusion and make us guess and make a second guess on that. Still, I think the the actual military risk of such an employment is is still unlikely. The reason for that is more militarily than than psychologically. Um, 
you in order to alter the course of the war you would have to use multiple nuclear weapons not just one of them uh, and doing that has side effects and risks for Putin as well and and there's no indication he's willing to take that for the time being so what's the thinking in Washington I mean Biden and the White House have been very scared about nuclear escalation probably a bit more cautious about it than some of the the more gung-ho supporters of Ukraine in fact people in Ukraine themselves but do they think that we've entered a really much more dangerous period than we've been in before? Um, they are worried about nuclear weapons, I think. Um, I am worried about nuclear weapons, so I know where they're coming <laughs> from. Just one of them can ruin your whole day. And I think the view, as I understand it, is that, is that it's a real possibility, but it's a possibility, as Gustav was implying, that would happen in order to avoid uh, what seemed to be an imminent defeat. Uh, the Russians have made a lot of nuclear threats in the last several months. They have made a, they've drawn a lot of red lines that have then been crossed. And they are, they are having a credibility problem, uh, particularly when it comes to nuclear weapons. And I think that the idea in Washington that the Russians are going to go nuclear because the uh, uh, Ukraine used an American weapon to attack a piece of territory that was Ukrainian last week and is Russian this week is simply not credible. And so I don't think that that is the worry. But but there is a big worry about the possibility of eventually going uh, of this this uh, conflict going nuclear if the if the Russians um, get more des get get very desperate. They they would rather uh, go nuclear than lose this war. And even if they don't have a good theory of victory along the lines that Gustav said, they might do it anyway because they might just go with a bad theory of victory. We've seen them do that uh, many times in the past. Of course, what that means, intriguingly, is that this announcement, the greater likelihood of the long war persisting from a Washington perspective, actually reduces the chances of it going nuclear because a nuclear happens if the Russians are on verge of are on the verge of losing. So that brings us back to this idea of the paper. And I think us, I think the feeling which we had at ECFR was that, um, you know, after uh, the first six months of the war, we were entering this new phase where time horizons were stretching and a lot of the battle was about, was a psychological one about whether Europeans would hold the course, whether Ukraine could hold the course. And therefore, it made sense to try and bring all these things together and to show that we were serious about the longer term across a number of different dimensions. And your paper looks at, at three main ways of thinking about that, the kind of military equipment on the ground, the idea of security guarantees and what a longer term security framework could look like, and the whole question about the economy, both sustaining the state in the short term and then rebuilding Ukraine in the longer term and integrating it into the, into the European uh, union. Um, why don't we take each of those theatres first, the most kind of short-term one, which is what we're talking about, it's the military one. So why don't we start with you, Gustav? What would a longer-term plan on the military side look like, which is not simply about the, the next shipment of tanks, but sort of thinking about uh, about what the kind of longer-term challenges? Yeah, well, part of sort of the longer-term challenge, both support Ukraine in the war, as well as supporting a Ukrainian transition towards a Western standard army, one that is one army that is interoperable and where 
ammunition supply and supply of uh, spare vehicles, etc., is much more easy than than with a uh, with a Soviet stock of inventory. Is is the fact that basically in Europe a lot of people underestimate the size of the Ukrainian armed forces and uh, underestimate the size of generally of warfare and and an armed conflict that is that is involved at this stage of the war. I mean, the, the Ukrainian army had of uh, for for their high ready standing forces comprised of professional soldiers uh, is larger than the land force of the Bundeswehr. Not larger, of course, than the air force of the Bundeswehr, but su- substantially larger than the land force. And the Bundeswehr is the largest. Is the largest EU land force. The French army is, has a bigger navy. That's my sort of general. That they're roughly the same size as an armed force, but they have a much bigger navy. Uh, and they have a nuclear deterrent, which of course the Germans are lacking, and they have employed all, all these all these kind of. Um, so there are a lot strength. of soldiers. There are a lot of soldiers. There are a lot, are a lot of tanks. That are like uh, Ukraine handled in, in just in the high ready forces uh, more than nine hundred uh, main battle tanks, which is more than the the German, British, and French stocks taken together. One thousand three hundred infantry fighting vehicles, six hundred twenty five uh, self propelled artillery systems. So that that quite a large size. And and we have already sort of we we are already making the experience that supplying such a large force at an industrial war is tricky and it's, it's enormously tricky for the Ukrainians because the Russians have destroyed a lot of their defense industry they need to rebuild it they need to find safe places that where they have air defense in place to to rebuild this uh, we we have aired the idea we can sort of transfer technology or transfer know how to settle 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 some of the factories in 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 for example, in Poland or Romania, close to the border, in order to to, to keep production uh, in place and, and and transfer them into a safer place, but but the problem is it's also very difficult for the Europeans. Um, the Americans are more transparent on their ammunition stocks and annual production, but just to 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 comp- that's why I compare it now with American figures. Uh, the on a thirteen combat days, so days of of high intensity combat, basically Ukrainians fire. Uh, the entire annual production of 155 millimeter shells in in the US, and that's that's an incredibly short time for a long war, and and it's it's not uh, the Americans are more transparent about these things than the Europeans, but on the European side, if if you ask defense officials, it's the same problem. So we there's, don't a, have there's production a competitive question about how do we produce it, yes. and then there's the cost. You also work out the <clears throat> eye watering costs of doing this. Yes, I I, I made a cost sort of what are we. What it take to 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 reequip Ukraine with, uh, with new systems and a twelve day uh, sort of ammunition supply for these systems, and I came up with sort of the total sum of one hundred billion euros that this would cost. So that's the total amount of extra money yeah, which yeah. the Germans have cleared yeah. for the whole Parliament for the yes. German Bundeswehr for, for the German Bundeswehr for five years. <laughs> <laughs> for five years. Yeah. Um, so. I mean, of course, you can you can lower the cost, for example, by by supplying secondhand equipment that you already have there, by fostering defense industrial corporations where the Ukrainians can produce at least some parts of this stuff on their own, which is more post-war perspective than, of course, now. But I think a lot of the discussions, especially on secondhand equipment, uh, people need to settle in for the thought that that this is a thing that you can talk about the time frame, but it's inevitable; it will have to come. Um, talking about Leopard tanks, etc., and because the the scale of the problem is just different, you don't you can't plug this with three howitzers here and two rocket launchers there. So it's a huge 
um, investment, both in, in in money, but also a complete rethinking of yep. our industrial supply chains. Yes. Should we move on to that? Because we don't have that long, and there's a lot of other theatres for us to cover. That's obviously not the very, very short term, though there are a lot of short term imperatives. But one of the, the bigger questions from a Ukrainian perspective is about their security in the longer term and how to make sure that that um, we end up with some sort of long-term situation where they're not in the middle of a sort of frozen conflict which can be escalated at any time. Um, Jeremy, you've been thinking a lot about that. Yeah, in the paper, we thought that it was very important to supplement the military assistance with the sort of long-term perspective by giving the, the Ukrainians some sort of multilateral security assurance. The, the point of this is in the first instance to, to reassure the Ukrainians that they're not going to be left alone in the face of future Russian aggression, but also that they should be feel comfortable enough with, that secure, with the security and the commitment of the West to be able to actually negotiate a settlement, that they don't need to uh, you know, uh, drive on Moscow in order to end the war because that's destabilizing for everybody. And also they're supposed to the security assurances are supposed to give a signal to to Russia, to Moscow, that if they escalate, the West will also escalate, that they have more left to give and that they will be willing to do that. So the Ukrainians are wanting to get into NATO and have Article 5, but you, that's obviously not realistic, particularly when they're in war. So what what are you suggesting as an alternative to that? We're suggesting instead of a legally binding treaty commitment, a political commitment, which is structured along the lines of Article 42.7 of the Lisbon Treaty, which essentially says that they will, in a sort of vague way, that um, that uh, the, the guarantors will, aid, will provide aid and assistance by all means in their power in accordance with Article 51 of the UN Charter, which basically gives them the option to uh, provide uh, assistance, uh, you know, on a humanitarian development level, but also all the way up to the option of further military assistance and even direct military action. It doesn't exclude it, but it also doesn't guarantee it. Uh, and the ambiguity is, in fact, a little bit helpful, I think, because it tries to show, it says to the Russians, we can do this. It says to the Ukrainians, you know, you better frame, you better frame this war correctly if, if because if, if, if you become a little bit overzealous in pursuing uh, the Russians, um, we won't always be with you under every circumstance. We have the option to look at the at the at the thing and make sure that it's it's not your fault. Um, and that's necessary in these situations to avoid what you might call a sort of geopolitical form of moral hazard, which where they take greater risks because they believe that the West and the United States and Europe are behind them. So what are the other elements of the security guarantees? They, they commit both Ukraine and the guarantors to establish a regular joint consultation channel for joint threat assessments and contingency planning. This is important to indicate that it's a sort of continuing commitment where every, every year or whatever, they'll get together and do the assessment that Gustav did to determine what the Ukrainians need in order to be able to defend themselves in the current circumstance. They commit them to convene uh, on Ukrainian um, request an emergency consultation mechanism within 24 hours. The Ukrainians complained that the previous uh, security assurances, the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, actually contained no such trigger. It doesn't commit anybody to actual action, but it does commit you 
to show up and listen to what the Ukrainians are saying. And I think that's really important. They also explicitly provide for sanctions, further sanctions against Russia to demonstrate to Russia that you have places to go economically that can get worse for them. And in the event that there is some sort of partial settlement and some of the existing sanctions go back, uh, are taken off, this would include a snap, a snapback mechanism so that those sanctions would, would come back on board automatically. And finally, I think, and most controversially, the assurances would only explicitly pertain to certain parts of Ukrainian territory. And this is difficult. Ukrainians are very upset about this. But currently, Russia occupies uh, parts of Ukraine. And uh, for the West to provide security guarantees uh, in, that cover areas that are already occupied would mean that they were essentially committing to an immediate war. Um, and they're not really willing to do that. Uh, this the, the nature of the security guarantees, and this is uh, not a question of justice, it's just a question of the reality of the thing, means that they, um, they're only trying to prevent further escalation. They would in no sense recognize Russian sovereignty over, over these territories in doing this, and so it would have to be quite carefully worded, but it wouldn't be a commitment to liberate Crimea, for example. Okay, great. So those are the on the security side. The other kind of big looming challenge is is the economic survival of the country. We're having to, uh, which there's lots of estimates that show that Ukraine can only raise forty percent of uh, the money it needs to through taxes to pay for its ongoing costs, without counting the costs of the war. But then there is the destruction of forty five percent of the Ukrainian GDP and questions about their economic future. Piotr, you've been thinking most about that. Yeah, so I think there is no doubt that Ukraine um, already now uh, needs a lot of support to fill the gaps in the budget, uh, to to uh, basically maintain the, the Ukrainian economy under the circumstances of, of the war. And, and that um, it is, there is also no doubt that this is only the European Union, basically, which can provide Ukraine with the necessary um, financial resources and and that long term and basically if we if we think in the categories of a long haul uh, we we need to envisage the right framework for 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 this long term support which which uh, will be necessary and so the one thing is of course the question of the of the post war reconstruction and the and the short term also support in the upcoming months but the other th- question is the prospect of uh, Ukraine's integration with the European Union. The, the EU took this milestone decision in June to grant the candidate status to Ukraine. And we believe that uh, this is the, the best framework, the accession process to the EU is the best framework for, for this reconstruction uh, assistance to work. But the problem with the integration process and the enlargement uh, policy is that um, it has become not very credible policy on the part of the European Union. The Balkan countries can uh, certainly testify that that uh, the, this prospect of joining the European Union has uh, not always been the um, best driver of uh, economic change and economic stability, and that uh, these societies in the Balkans have been also extremely disappointed with the fact that the European Union has not basically delivered on its own commitments. 
there are many hurdles, many blockades on the on the on the path towards the European Union, and it's not just because of of the of, of the candidate countries not delivering, but also because of the European Union not treating its own commitments seriously. So, so I think what we suggest is that the EU should make sure that in the case of Ukraine, but also Moldova and and Balkan countries, we envisage that as, as a package. It's not just about Ukraine. Uh, the European Union should provide these countries with a very concrete mid-term goal of joining the European single market, the, the, the four freedoms, as soon as these countries will be ready for that. Of course, there's not a short, shortcut to the European integration, but it is necessary also for the societies to, to know that the European Union is serious about um, this commitment to, to help them on the way to the European Union, because this is the the, the credibility of this process is the one of the main preconditions for for these societies to to remain committed to the European values, to the to the rule of law, to the democracy, and in in that way also one of the important factors relating to the stability of these uh, of these countries. And there is also a, a precondition for the reconstruction assistance uh, to uh, to work uh, properly. So we we argue that you should to shed this midterm goal. And uh, which wouldn't be any alternative to the European to the membership of the European Union, but but we we know very well that there are very serious political obstacles and uh, for the future enlargement. So it is in the interest of Ukraine and the interest of the European Union to anchor the candidate countries as soon as possible in the European space, even if they are not um, are granted the full political rights within the European Union, voting rights, um, but, uh, but this midterm goal which uh, would, would basically serve the interests of both, of both sides. So if you add all of those things together, it's quite a package. Gustav's 100 billion, your economic assistance is uncosted, Piotr, but people think it could be hundreds of billions as well. Some people think that the whole thing could cost 600 billion, which is what we're spending on the European Recovery Plan for a country that's not in the EU yet. Um, so the question of how to, to pay for it and how to keep publics on side, I think is going to be a big challenge as we go into this difficult winter. But I think that's one of the reasons behind the paper, that we want to sort of set out a long-term plan and both signal to, to Ukrainians that we're with them, but also bring European publics along with us. We're going to come back to all of these topics in future podcasts. We're going to see what happens in Russia. I'm sure we'll talk to you many more times Kadri, and we're going to look at a lot of the military and the security and economic challenges facing Ukraine. But I think it's been a, a really useful exercise to try and bring all these things together as we enter a new phase with the, the, the Russian escalation in response to the, the Ukrainian successes on the ground, which I think does unfortunately make this long war look more likely and make these questions of preparation even more important. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, though, as we run out of time, and that's our bookshelf segment. Kadri, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I have recently been reading the essays by uh, George Orwell, amazingly topical in, in many contexts. Uh, Ukraine war or new British government, I find his support to my thinking on a number of topics. Highly recommended. Excellent. What about you, Piotr? On my bookshelf is the uh, biography of Jerusalem by Simon Seebeck Montefiore. I'm <laughs> preparing myself for a trip to, to the Holy Land. 
And what about you, Gustav? Deeply embarrassing. Um, I've forgotten the author. Uh, I'm reading a book about the Habsburg Empire. I can, can send you the link. This is sort of my fetish uh, uh, over the past summer to to read what Anglo-Saxon <coughs> authors think about my own country and its history because <laughs> Austrians are so polarized by now and history is no exclusive to that that you know, uh, uh, certain figures and people are just uh, thought of as either saints or the complete devil. Uh, but most of them have been a, a fair mix of both. And and so, so this is the genre. But I have to admit, I'm only at the sort of beginning of this adventure uh, where we had sort of fairly not so controversial emperors uh, and, and the juicy part is about to come. And I don't know sort mm. of whether... How how they really deal with the juicy parts, so I can't make a we'll final verdict on that. We'll have to get you back onto future the probably Peter Judson. Yeah, great, fantastic. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf? Uh, well, I would say, Gustav, by the way, I would be, as an Anglo-Saxon, I would be more than happy to tell you what I think of your country. Um, <laughs> but uh, what's on my bookshelf is, the, um, is something called The Found and the Lost. I just finished it. It's the complete novellas of Ursula K. Le Guin, who is a, um, or was a uh, American science fiction author. And she tends to write about how different social uh, arrangements, different um, physical, uh, different terrain attributes lead to very, very different societies, very different gender relations. And so she has two different worlds, the, the Earth Sea, which is a sort of fantasy realm, and the Ecuman, which is a sort of science fiction realm. Wow, a lot of stuff to, to, for people to read if they want to escape from the from the war in Ukraine. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do subscribe to it on whatever platform you've used to find us on. And while you're there, it'd be fantastic if you could give us a five-star rating and a positive review because it will help other people find the podcast. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned, not least to survive and thrive this essential long-term plan, which my colleagues have written for the future of, of European support for Ukraine at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Jeremy Shapiro, Gustav Kresser, Katrin Leek, Piotr Buras, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riegel. <laughs>